Good morning, Real Life family. Thanks for joining us online. I am uh, glad that you're watching on the internet. And so uh, just want to remind everybody that you can always catch the services live at 9 or 10.30 online. And then you can also catch a replay, which many people do later in the day or even another like a Monday or a Tuesday night uh, that works for your schedule. And so just, just a reminder that you can also watch a replay. You don't have to always just catch it live. Um, and then we were back with uh, in-person services at Daggy Hall, 9 and 10.30 here in Pullman. And then we're also uh, starting Thursday nights at 6.30 at the Colfax Methodist Church. We're renting that facility and we'll be having a service out there. So here's what you need to know. Um, we're going to have the same message and uh, same content every place you go, whether it's online, out at Colfax, or at Daggy Hall. You're going to get the same thing. Um, Obviously, uh, those of you that are comfortable coming back to in-person gatherings, we would really love to gather together in person. There is something special about standing in a room, worshiping God together, praying together, and just seeing one another. And that is uh, just definitely an encouragement. It was really fun to be back this last week for our first week in person. And so i uh, love to see some of you then. And for those that aren't ready for that yet or are immune compromised or your health is at risk uh, or maybe you're just out of the area, we're super grateful that we're able to continue to bring online services to you this way as well. So we're going to jump in. As you know, we are on a, uh, an adventure through the book of Acts and we're kind of on the home stretch wrapping it up here over the next couple of weeks of this series that we've been going through. And this week, we're going to be tackling chapters 25 and 26. And what you need to know going into this passage today to learn a little bit about uh, kind of prepping to make sure we're ready for this message today is that Paul has been in jail in Caesarea. But just mentally to kind of have the right context, it, really it's been more like house arrest. He's been in uh, a palace of Herod's in Caesarea, essentially under house arrest, uh, for two years, he's had visitors allowed to come and sp uh, spend time with them and supply him, and he's been able to write letters and send letters and receive letters. And so while his life certainly has been on hold and he didn't have the freedom to come and go as he pleased, it also hasn't been a terrible, torturous jail stint. And then what happened is Felix, that we talked about last week, was uh, being called back to Rome to kind of give an account for some stuff that he had done that wasn't great. And as he left, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And so he left Paul in jail. And so now Felix's replacement alive, uh, arrives, and it's a guy named Portius Festus. And Festus, in the beginning of chapter uh, 25 here, we see Festus kind of out traveling the region that he's going to oversee and govern. And he ends up in Jerusalem trying to connect with the Jewish leaders and the high priests and uh, religious authorities. And he's trying to just get a, he's trying to just take the pulse as a new governor of the region of kind of like, how are his people doing that he's going to oversee? And what's the first thing they want to talk about when the new governor comes to Jerusalem? They want to talk about Paul because Paul is still hanging out there like they they have not got uh, what they wanted with Paul and so the very first thing they do is they make their case against Paul and talk about all the things that they think he's done wrong and why they think he should be um, uh, really put to death and face the death penalty for these heinous crimes that they're uh, making against him and 
and they plead with this new governor, kind of probably thinking, well, he's new. Maybe he's not quick up on everything. Let's try and see if we can get him to summon or send for Paul from Caesarea to have him come to Jerusalem. Because if he would do that, then finally we could send some assassins to lay in wait and kill him on the way. Thankfully, um, Festus didn't really agree with the plan. He didn't know anything about the assassination attempt, but he was not down with the idea of sending Paul all the way up to Jerusalem because he said, hey, uh, in just any day now, I'm going to be headed back to Caesarea. And if I'm going to go back to Caesarea and you guys are so intent on having this case heard, then whoever of you are the right officials um, that have the um, authority to make your case against him, come back to Caesarea with me. And we'll have it out when we get there. We'll hear it then, right? And so that was that was the way the plan was going to lay out. And so Festus is in Jerusalem about a week. He travels back to Caesarea along with some of the Jewish uh, officials. And then the very next day, so this is like his second day in on the job in Caesarea, uh, Festus calls for the tribunal, the uh, council. He has Paul brought before him and... Um, the very first thing he does is he starts to uh, unravel this case against Paul. And so he allows the Jewish officials to make their case against him and spell out all the reasons why they feel like Paul uh, deserves a death sentence and why he's broken all these different laws. So after about a week in Jerusalem, uh, Festus travels back to Caesarea. And as he gets to Caesarea the very next day, he calls Paul and because he wanted to do the Jews a favor and sort of get off on the right foot with them, he offers to send Paul back to Jerusalem. And so he actually asks Paul, hey, uh, you, this case has been pending forever. You've had these charges against you. It doesn't seem like it's a Roman thing. It seems like it's a Jewish thing. How about we just send you back to Jerusalem so you can make your defense once and for all and defend yourself? Well, Paul wasn't falling for it. He was not falling for it. It was like, at this point, Paul was just sort of like, I've had enough. Um, I am, I'm not guilty of anything. Like he say, he's saying, I'm not guilty of breaking any Roman laws. I'm not guilty of breaking any Jewish laws. If there are still people who want to accuse me of something, then they need to come here because this is the right place in the right court for them to bring their case before me. You're not going to send me back to Jerusalem to have my case heard there where surely I will be murdered, right? Like, and, and Paul ends up getting stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so his only way out of not being returned to Jerusalem is even though he's innocent and hasn't done anything wrong, the only way he could sort of salvage not going back to Jerusalem and risking his life was to make an appeal to Caesar. And so Paul tells Festus that he appeals to have his case heard before the emperor in Rome. And so Festus is like, all right, well, you're a Roman citizen and you're a Roman citizen of some importance. And so this is obviously a, a really important case. And there's a lot of uh, hubbub around uh, why people want you uh, in jail or even killed for different reasons and different accusations. So because you've appealed to Caesar, I will send you to have your case heard before Caesar. And so that's sort of where that stops. Then here's what's interesting is just a couple days later, an even higher ranking official shows up in Caesarea. This time it's King Herod Agrippa. And this is Herod Agrippa II. And he comes 
with uh, what is uh, talks about in Scripture as his sister Bernice, and there's all sorts of documentation that they were far more than a brother and sister. They were lovers, and there was a cover-up marriage, and there was just all sorts of just kind of weird stuff going on. And King Herod uh, Agrippa II is the great-grandson of King Herod of Jesus's day, and um, he was an interesting character. He grew up in Rome, and he actually was really good friends with two of the future emperors of Rome, or Caesars of Rome, Claudius and Titus. And so he is uh, very connected, very hooked up politically, and had very good friends in high places when it came to Rome. And so he was very devout to Rome. But the thing that's interesting about uh, this Herod Agrippa is he's also very sympathetic to the Jews, and he was known as a guy who worked hard to uh, bring peace and keep peace between Rome and the Jews. And so, as a result, he was a guy that was known to have uh, really studied and learned uh, Jewish laws and traditions, and uh, was very familiar with Judaism, and, uh, and this was the area that he ruled over is where the Jews lived. And so, it, it was pretty cool because uh, now we've got uh, Paul finding out that he is going to get to have his case heard before Agrippa. Now, this is pretty exciting because up to this point, Paul has been bounced around from uh, you know, a, a Roman commander you know, to kind of hear his case in front of him to uh, the Jewish high priest to the whole Sanhedrin, there, sort of the Jewish Supreme Court, and then taken to a more regional type of court in Caesarea to be heard by a different governor. And then another governor comes in, and he doesn't know what to do with them. And so finally, to have a very high-ranking Roman official, in fact, uh, outside of the emperor in Rome, Agrippa was the highest-ranking Roman official that Paul could have gone before to tell his story, to share his testimony, and to give his defense. And so that was pretty exciting. It's like, finally, we're getting somewhere, right? Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been on one of those uh, customer service phone calls where you're trying to get something solved, and you've got to call some 1-800 line to some company, and it's like, push this number, push that number, push this number, and then you wait forever, and then it's push this number, and you wait forever, and it feels like it takes hours to get a human being on the line. And when you finally get a human being on the line, they're like, yeah, well, you pushed the wrong button. That's not my department, right? I'm not the right person to help you. I know uh, a couple years ago when I was canceling DirecTV uh, for the last and final time of my life, uh, I went through such a nightmare to get DirecTV shut off. It was crazy. It literally was like something around six hours I clocked between holds and return phone calls. And by the time it was all said and done, I got all the equipment returned the way I was supposed to and everything was shipped back and I got my final bill and I had this like ridiculous bill that said I hadn't sent any of the stuff back, which I had all the tracking stuff. So I wasn't worried about proving that I had sent it back. What I was really worried and frustrated with was that I was going to have to call the dreaded DirecTV 1-800 line again, right? Because it seemed like no matter who you talk to, nobody could solve the problem. And so I spent hours again sorting through this stuff, trying to get it resolved of uh, what would, had been sent back and all the details, right? Everybody knows this story. We've all done it many times with lots of different companies and organizations. 
And finally, I got this lady on the line who was this uh, higher-up supervisor in the system, and she was kind, and she was knowledgeable, and she had authority, and she knew how to work their system, and she could read and understood what was happening, what was in the notes previously. And man, I got to tell you, when I found out and learned about who she was and how she was sorting through all my stuff and actually dealing with my problem, man, I was on cloud nine. It was like winning the lottery. It was like, finally, after all of this trouble, I've got the right person in front of me to hear my situation. And it just that's the story that comes to mind when I think about Paul and the the level of frustration and how long it had been for him going through all these different avenues to finally know that he is before someone who is the right kind of person in the right kind of position with the right authority. And beyond even all that, it was a person who was sympathetic to the Jews and valued peace between the Rome, uh, Romans and Jews and knew Jewish law and scripture and teaching and that was going to be significant for Paul. And so Paul is excited, and he's about to um, give his defense and kind of spell out his case to Agrippa. And so it begins in Acts 26. I want to just read the first couple of verses to you here, and we're just going to kind of walk through 26 and unpack what's going on as we go. It says in verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand, and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are so well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Right? So it's like Paul's like, finally, I've got the right guy with the right authority, with the right background and the right understanding of my circumstances. And it's, it's been years in the making to get an audience before someone like you. And I, and I respect you and I value this opportunity. Please be patient. It's going to take me a minute to spell this all out. Right. And so that's sort of where he starts. And, and so he starts his story and he starts all the way back at the beginning of where he grew up and how he was trained and how he was raised and the the sect of Pharisees that he was in and kind of his devotion as a Jew. And he goes through everything all the way up to the, the part where he is really talking about um, his conversion and about how he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was out trying to track down followers of the way, right? And, and so I want to read the next little chunk of scripture with you here. And there's some interesting things here because Paul includes some details in his account here to Agrippa that he doesn't include anywhere else. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about why that might be. And so he goes like this in Acts 26, picking it up in verse 12. He says, One of the journeys uh, I was going on to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. It was blazing around me and my companions, and we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. Um, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. And I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And I'm sending you 
to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul shares with Agrippa how he encountered Jesus, or Jesus rather encountered him on the way to Damascus and and asked why Paul was persecuting him. And, And a question that probably had to stump a devout Jew like Paul, like here he thought his whole life was devoted to serving God, to honoring God, and here God's crying out to him, why are you against me, right? And and so it gets his attention, and it's got him wondering what God is up to and why is he asking him this. And and then he goes on to say, you know, like, it's like saying, Paul, why are you against me? And, and don't you know it's hard for you to kick against the goats? And for us in the culture that we live in, unless you happen to be a cattle rancher, you probably have no idea what it means when someone reads this passage to kick against the goats. And, and for Agrippa and for uh, Paul and the other Jewish hearers in the audience, it would have immediately brought something to mind when they heard the idea of kicking against the goads. They would have all thought of a prophet in Jewish history who was famous for kicking against the goads. He was the poster child for kicking against the goads, and it was the prophet Jonah. And Jonah was a, was a, a prophet that God sent to a specific people group for a specific reason to share the message with them of repentance to these pagans and Jonah wanted no part of it and he did everything he could to do the opposite of what God had asked him to do and so when when uh, Jewish hearers or readers think about this idea of kicking against the goads they automatically think of Jonah so in order to understand what goads are like what exactly are we talking about here it's going to reference us back to Ecclesiastes where we've got Solomon giving some wise instruction to uh, his sons and others in the kingdom. In Ecclesiastes 12, chapter 11, or chapter 12, verse 11, it says, These words of mine are like goads. Uh, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Now, Solomon writes here that uh, wise words given by one shepherd, which he's referencing, he's talking about God. So wise words that are given by God um, are like firmly embedded nails in the end of a goad. And for everybody in that culture and that community, this would have been a familiar tool, something that looked just like this. And it's, uh, this one's real fancy high-tech. They didn't have uh, extendable goads uh, back in the day. But uh, it came with a hook on the end, so you could sort of pull at a cow or a, a livestock, or you could give it a poke. And, and so what Solomon is saying is that uh, goads are like wise words that God speaks that are like uh, sharp nails firmly in the end of the goad. So if you can imagine this stick with some sharp nails sticking out of it, those sharp nails are actually God's wise words. And you may think for a minute, well, this is sort of a weird analogy, but it made sense to them. This was something that they were very familiar with, a tool they saw all the time and used often. And so it was a, they were able to say, hey, 
you know what God's wise words are like? They're just like the nail in the end of that thing where you just come along and you just lightly touch the back of a cow and all of a sudden, well, it goes left. You touch it over here on this side, it goes right. One's being really stubborn, you put a little pressure on it and voila, it goes the direction you want it to go. And, and Solomon is saying goads are like God's wise words that prompt us along in the right direction. And if we're quick to obey and go the direction God's word guides us, then it's just a gentle nudge. If we are, are obstinate and disobedient, we might, it might feel a little sharp. It might feel a little pain as a consequence of not really heeding God's words. And, and it says that Jonah was known as the poster child for kicking against the goads. And here, everybody would have thought of that when, they, when uh, Paul referenced that God actually said to him, why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, like, why are you going against the wise words of God? You're trying to fight against the cattle prod. It's not going to end well for you. It's only going to hurt, right? And so that's what that was all about. And so it gave everybody in the audience there, Agrippa and others, this idea that Paul had something in common with Jonah, the prophet. And so that's the first thing. And the next thing is... Uh, this idea that that um, God tells him to rise up, to get up and um, stand on his feet. And that's a reference that that uh, it's called the Ramez. It, it harkens back to Ezekiel, the prophet, when he got his calling from God. In Ezekiel 2, this is how God spoke to Ezekiel. He said, uh, verse 2, it starts like this. He said, he said to me, son of man, Stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So God called Ezekiel to rise up, to be his man, to speak to this rebellious nation of Israelites. And he makes it clear that whether they listen to him or not, whether they hear and obey or not, there's no mistaking that there is a prophet has been among him, among them as a nation, like someone God had appointed to speak for him. And so here, Paul is sharing his testimony and he's giving an account of how God interacted with him on the road to Damascus and he's giving an account to someone that was familiar with the text and would have understood that he was essentially saying that like God gave me the calling and mission and direction of a prophet. God, like Ezekiel, God called me to stand up and go and instead of uh, the Israelite call to the rebellious nation that, that God called Ezekiel to, Paul said, God called me to stand up and be as one who speaks for him, first to the Israelites, first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, and that he would be a light. And so, Paul continues with the rest of his story, okay? So, I want to uh, take a look at uh, Acts 26, picking it up in chapter 19, it goes like this. 
So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all uh, Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Uh, And that is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and they tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, he would bring the, the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And at this point, Festus, remember he's the governor, not, not the king, Festus interrupted Paul's defense and he says, Are, you're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your, your great learning is driving you insane. And so you got to see, like, as Paul is sharing his story and, and along the way, um, it, he's also sharing really good news about the Messiah. Festus hears that, and he just can't take it anymore. He, he pipes up telling Paul he must be crazy. And because for Festus, all of this stuff that Paul was saying was starting to sound just a little bit too weird. He, he's talking about a suffering Messiah, a uh, language Paul, or, uh, Festus didn't understand. He's talking about that he would be the first to rise from the dead. Again, this wasn't stuff Festus was familiar with, and it seemed weird. And, and he's talking about how he's going to be the one that's going to bring a message, risen from the dead, bringing a message first to his own people and then to Gentiles. And, and finally, Festus just couldn't take it anymore. And he's like, this guy's got to be crazy. Like, you've studied so much, you've gone nuts, right? And the thing is, I think something that we can learn from this is I feel like this is often the case with unbelievers. The the words of your testimony and the gospel message often sound crazy to people who don't know God or believe in God or have no experience or understanding of a creator. And it can seem crazy and weird and, and really unbelievable to people who are living in the dark. And and as a Christian, uh, it can be really frustrating, right? Because sometimes you can be making a, a defense or sharing your story, even just your testimony, and then someone comes off with this, like, basically what you're saying is crazy, like it doesn't make any sense, or they sort of refute even your personal experience, your testimony, and as a result, you can respond with anger or defensiveness, um, and, and it, it can be frustrating as you're trying to share your faith at times. In Acts 26, verse 25, he says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. So you see, first of all, Paul responds with kindness. He doesn't lash out or get frustrated or overly defensive. He doesn't get drug into a name-calling game with Festus. Here Festus is telling him he's crazy. He doesn't respond with more name-calling. He doesn't sling mud with Festus. Instead, he just says, you know, when he's telling him that he's insane, Paul just responds really with a a compliment to Festus. You know, he's, he's like, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. And so he... He offers him the respect his position deserves. And so there's 
kindness in his response. And the next thing he does is he, he kind of has this um, humble confidence that's interesting at a time like this because he just simply says, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. He doesn't try to argue. He doesn't start into his 12-point evidences series to defend his case and use this as his platform to argue back with the other person that doesn't understand what he's talking about. He just simply has this quiet, humble confidence to say, no, I, I actually know what I'm saying, and I'm not insane, and what I'm saying is true and reasonable. And the last thing he does is he highlights the fact that King Agrippa knows what he's talking about. And it, it, he does it in a nice way, right? Not arguing or butting heads with Festus. And he just points out that the king knows what he's talking about, that he hasn't turned a blind eye to any of it. He's familiar with all of the things that have happened with the uh, Christian movement and the birth of Christianity uh, and the history of Judaism. like He's like, this king, he studied these things. He's familiar with these things. None of this has escaped his notice. And I think they're great reminders for us as we share our testimony and we talk about what we believe and kind of how we do that with other people. Because the reality is we're going to face opposition when we share our testimony, when we talk about what we believe in and why we believe in it and what God means to us, what our faith means to us, there are times for sure you're going to face opposition and people are going to think probably at times you're maybe crazy or a little bit different um, or they just don't understand what you believe. And the other thing we got to remember is a lot of times the opposition or pushback we're going to face is going to come from people that know us pretty well, oftentimes our family, our close friend group or co-workers, people that we feel like we've kind of gotten to know. And the reason a lot of the times is because there's a comfort level to sort of be honest back with us. Like, oh, I feel like I know you good enough to tell you that I think you're an idiot, right? Like, I don't think you know what you're believing in. Like, it seems fake. Like, who would believe in a, a God that allows all this evil in the world? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense why anybody would believe in that. Or, like, seriously, you actually believe that people resurrect from the dead or these healings and miracles in the Bible that are talked about. Like, that just seems like a fairy tale, right? Like, People say those things when there's a level of relationship and comfort with us generally, right? So I think there's some things that we can learn from Paul as we face opposition and people thinking that we're a little bit crazy. It might be really helpful to remember how Paul responded. You know, first of all, with kindness, no name calling, no arguing, no getting defensive, right? And then next, with quiet confidence and just really reminding ourselves about our personal experience and the gospel message. Um, you know, just something as simple as, I can understand how it sounds a little bit crazy or weird to you, but I know what I know. And I am super comfortable with my beliefs, right? To just say something like that, just a humble confidence. You're not arguing, you're not making a defense. You're just stating that you know what you know and you're comfortable with your beliefs and your faith. And lastly, kind of like Paul, sometimes it's helpful to mention uh, respected believers who also know the gospel and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And most of us know Christians that we look up to and respect. And one of the things you could do as a way of kind of affirming your position as a believer is to 
mention some of those folks. You know, what if you're like, hey, as someone's pushing back on what you believe and why you believe it, what if you responded like Paul with kindness? You know, hey, I, I really respect your opinion and, and I know that my story may sound a little bit weird to you and it's kind of hard for, for you to understand at, at certain points or for certain reasons. But I know personally, without a doubt, that Jesus is real. And, and I know my personal experience in coming to faith has been something that's shaped and changed the person I am. And, and I just don't have any doubt about God being real. And, um, and so, you know, in addition to that, like, I actually know a lot of other people that I really look up to and really respect that also believe in God and also believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have really put their faith in Him. In fact, uh, my grandma, that influenced me a lot, and I just had a tremendous amount of respect for her. She had this kind of faith. Or, you know, my dad, who I have looked up to my whole life, or, you know, a boss of a really successful company that's very wise and has done, you know, like, you get the idea. Like, you also bring in that you also know other people that are, uh, wise people that you respect and look up to who also believe what you believe. And it's just sort of a way to exude some confidence and, uh, and just for your own personal help, you know, to just sort of affirm to them, like, I'm not in this alone. There are other people who I respect and look up to who believe like I believe. And so those are some things that are, I think, really helpful for us to remember and keep in mind as we think about people uh, opposing our faith like Paul had to deal with. And as the passage wraps up, we've got King Agrippa stepping away from Paul's case and he's telling Festus that he believes Paul is innocent, right? And, and if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could have set him free. And I think this is a really important reminder for us as we look at this chunk of Acts right here is that it reminds us um, that God's ways are not always in line with our ways or our plans. It reminds us that God's timing and our timing don't always sync up, right? Like God had in mind Paul's ultimate mission and calling and destination. I mean, here Paul has been in jail for two years. He's gone before um, Felix before the other governor multiple times and explained himself and he'd been in Jerusalem before that in jail and two years with Felix and then another governor Festus comes in and there's all this back and forth and then finally after all this time he he has to appeal to Caesar which locks him in on a trip to Rome like there's no getting there's no undoing that appeal and then just days later He's before the person who has the authority to actually set him free. And that person, Agrippa, says, I believe your story. Had you not appealed to Caesar, I could have set you free. But God made it clear to Paul that Rome was the goal. Rome was the, the end goal, the mission, the destination was to preach the gospel in Rome, to be God's witness in Rome like he had been in Jerusalem. You see, the goal wasn't freedom. The goal wasn't retirement on a sunny island, right? It wasn't uh, more missionary journeys for Paul uh, or whatever else Paul might have had in mind as, you know, as the, the thing that might have sounded great at the time. Like God had made it clear that, that he wanted Paul to go to Rome and to be his witness, his gospel messenger 
to the epicenter of the universe at the time. And it kind of reminds us that there are so many times that we do in our own uh, walk to lose sight of the bigger story that God is telling. Uh, the, the, the calling and direction that God gives us in our lives personally, and instead we, we can get sidetracked on things that really seem important at the time, right? Like this other thing appealed so much, like freedom for Paul certainly had to have had an appeal. And we wonder, we don't know, but we wonder, was there regret? Like, is he kicking himself for appealing to Caesar, knowing that Agrippa would have set him free? You know, you just don't know what was going on inside Paul's heart and mind at that time. But there are so many times where we get sidetracked by things that seem like good things, but they're not in line with God's ultimate mission and calling for our life. And so, thankfully, Paul did have a clear calling. He did have clear direction in his life, and it came from both his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. God made it super clear to him that he was going to be his witness first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and he was going to use him like a prophet of old to be a light and a a witness to bring the gospel message to those people. And so he had that direction there, and then he also got even more clear, specific direction One night in jail in Jerusalem, God made it clear to him that he would ultimately go to Rome to be God's witness in Rome as he had been God's witness in Jerusalem. And so those were really helpful things to keep Paul focused and on mission with the the way God had called him and the places and and things God had called him to do. And the, the thing is, I realize a lot of people really don't have a clear sense of calling and direction personally like they may know that generally they're called to be a disciple maker they're called to uh, live out the great commission you know people may say like generally i know as a christian i'm called to love god with all my heart soul mind and strength and love my neighbor as myself but like what does that actually look out like for me personally in my personality, in my upbringing, in my background, in my skill sets, in my bent, in my peer group, and all that stuff. Like, so there's this, there's this sense of a general calling that all Christians have, and then there's this more personal calling that I think each of us really gets individually from God. And I think a lot of times people struggle with discerning those things. Where does one end and another begin, or how do you find out what your personal calling is? Where does that come from? Um, Some people have a clear idea, and many, I think, kind of flounder and don't know. And I read a a book here recently over my sabbatical that I found really helpful for uh, unpacking this very idea of general calling and personal calling. And all of you know Chris Wilson, our worship pastor. His dad, Todd, um, is involved in uh, a lot of Christian ministry throughout the country and involved in... Uh, a church planting conference called Exponential, and he is passionate about uh, people planting churches and the gospel advancing around the earth. And he's also really passionate about people really embracing and learning uh, what their personal calling is. Like, how do you actually, like, not just beyond the general be a Christian, but like, how do you embrace who you are and how has God made you and what is God calling you to? Like, what's your, you're going to go to Rome thing and how do you figure that out and he wrote a book called more and uh, we'll put it up on screen and make sure you can see it you can get it on Amazon or any of the other book selling places but I would highly recommend if you're 
going to um, really dive in and figure out what your calling is. This is a great resource that I would encourage you to get and uh, chew through. So that's what we're going to wrap up with, and we're going to finish with communion before we head out this morning. So if you have not got your elements ready for communion, go ahead and grab those now, and then uh, we'll take communion together before we finish. This morning we're going to wrap up with communion like we do every week and this is an important part of our time together is uh, this time where we reflect and remember what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he told us that this bread represents his body broken for us and so as often as we eat the bread let's remember that. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he told his disciples then that the cup represented a new covenant, a new arrangement or agreement between him and people, between God and people. And it was uh, an agreement that was sealed with the shedding of his blood. And so the shed blood of Christ for us represents the fact that uh, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we can have our sins forgiven because his shed uh, blood paid the price and so every week when we take this cup together we reflect and are thankful for the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so let's take the cup together go ahead and bow with me and let's pray God we love you and we just thank you so much for your son for the sacrifice he made for us on the cross Lord, for the opportunity to reflect and remember on that um, every week when we get together. Um, help us to never take for granted what we have in uh, faith in Christ. Thanks for forgiving our sins, Lord. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. It has uh, been awesome to be together this morning. Don't forget uh, live in-person services at 9 and 1030 on Sunday mornings at Daggy Hall and live in-person service out in Colfax at 630 p.m. on Thursday nights. And so you can catch us live in person any of those locations or continue to join us online. Uh, those of you that are watching online, keep uh, helping share the services. And uh, once the service is done, if you've watched it, it's really helpful if you share the service and even write some comments about what stood out to you about the message or, or what do you think maybe God was showing you or teaching you and help us continue to spread the gospel message and help other people be affected and impacted by God's word. So thanks for your help. We'll see you all soon.